You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Last week we saw um, that celebration that took place um, regarding the resurrection of Lazarus and um, the people that were celebrating, but also the, the hatred that was continuing to mount uh, towards Jesus for working this sign based on how the people were responding and believing him. Um, and we look specifically at, at, at our response and, and, and finding out which group we kind of fit ourselves in. Because I, I presented to you the, the believing group, the, the faking group, because we also see Judas uh, in the midst of last week's celebration, and then the hating group, and that's those who were just outright rejecting uh, Jesus and what he was doing. And so we said that while the extreme worth of Jesus cannot be truly measured, it can be demonstrated by the ways we serve and give, which will ultimately reflect the change he brings to our hearts about what is most valuable in this life, right? And so we said that and we could never fully show somebody else the, the value or the worth of Jesus, that there's nothing that we could do, there's nothing that we could offer, there's nothing that we could demonstrate that would show how valuable Jesus is. But we can um, demonstrate it more and more uh, by serving and giving to those around us. Um, and by doing so, it reflects the change that Jesus has created in our heart, uh, shows kind of a recalibration about what we deem valuable. We deem Jesus valuable over the things that we could potentially possess in this life, right? And so we saw believers being called to demonstrate faith, doing that with service and sacrifice. And so we said to serve like Martha with the gifts and passions that you possess. And then we said to give like Mary with the resources and finances you possess, right? And so we looked specifically at uh, Mary and the uh, substantial financial sacrifice that she makes to give this ointment to Jesus, to pour it upon his feet. We said that possessions were a way for Mary uh, to bless Jesus, right? That it was a way to worship Jesus, that it wasn't something to cling to, to hang on to for security purposes, but instead she saw the possessions that she had as a means of blessing Jesus and, and showing that he is valuable to her. We said that fakers need to recognize the true value of things over the actual cost, right? And that Judas was very in tune with the cost of things, but didn't really understand the true value of things, right? He was hoping for temporary gain. Um, possessions were better than Jesus to him. We even saw that in how he put greater value upon the ointment than he did Jesus, right? He said we could get a year's worth of salary from the ointment, but he was willing to sell Jesus for about four months' worth of salary, right? So to him, the ointment was more valuable than even Jesus. And then we saw haters need to stop rejecting Jesus before it's too late, that we need to celebrate rather than criticize the change that Jesus brings and embrace his authority, be willing to relinquish our own over our own lives. And so I challenged you last week, application-wise, what does showing extravagant love for Jesus look like today? How do we show his value. We talked about giving to others, Hebrews 13, 16. And so hopefully you've been able to think through what this looks like for you. And I don't think it's a clear-cut answer for everybody. I don't think that we all show the value of Jesus in necessarily the same ways, 
right? And so I think individually we have to decide and think through and meditate, what does it look like for me to show the immense value that I place upon Jesus? All right, that brings us to the triumphal entry today uh, found in John chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 26. We've already read through it this morning. We'll continue to read through it as we work through the text today. But to look at our summary sentence for this morning, Jesus comes to die for our salvation, which also serves as our model for imitation, meaning that in order to be with him, he calls us to be fruitful by dying, to gain life by hating it, and to find honor by serving. Jesus comes to die for our salvation, which also serves as our model for imitation, meaning that in order to be with him, he calls us to be fruitful by dying, to gain life by hating it, and to find honor by serving. And so we'll see at the back end of this passage some paradoxes that kind of exist there, things that seem to be the opposite of what we would expect, right? You wouldn't think that by dying that you would be more fruitful. You wouldn't think that to gain this life we would be called to hate it. And you certainly wouldn't think necessarily that to find honor you would do so by serving and taking kind of a back seat versus trying to pursue and seize uh, honor, right? For our kids, Jesus calls us to sacrifice our lives by following him. Jesus calls us to sacrifice our lives by following him. So he comes to die for our salvation, and we, we don't need to fall prey to thinking that his death is simply an example for us, right? Like his death is so much more than that. His death is a substitutionary act whereby we are set free uh, from the wrath of God, right? But there is an, uh, an element or a piece to his death that does serve as an example, that does serve as a piece of imitation for us, right? Far more than that, and sometimes people try to relinquish his death simply to being an act or an example for us to follow only, and that's certainly not what it is. Christ dies in our place, right? But in doing so, he does leave behind a model for us to imitate um, that we too are fruitful by dying, that we too gain life by hating it, that we too find honor by serving. And he is certainly the ultimate example of all of those things. All right, Um, as we look at this passage, let me read to you first of all, uh, verse 12, it says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right. Um, In this passage here, this is around the same time of the celebration of the Passover. Right. We saw that last week, that the setting is the Passover is coming in the days ahead. And so people are gathering for this Passover feast. Um, and I don't know about you, like when I think about Bible times, sometimes I, my, my mindset is very limited in trying to picture what life was like back then. And it's always on, on a much smaller scale than what we see today. Um, for some reason, like when I even picture like cities and stuff, it, it just, I feel like the, the amount of people back then were a lot smaller than right now. Right. But estimations about how many people showed up for the Passover feast in Jerusalem, it, it could have been upwards of 2 million people that were here at this time, 
right? And so I'm thinking like, I, didn't even, I don't even know that I knew two million people were on the earth back in the Bible times, right? Because I have a hard time grasping how we went from Adam and Eve to what we have today so quickly in the amounts of just a few thousand years. But even at that time frame, you know, millions of people on the earth, right? And there may have been upwards of two million people in the city of Jerusalem at this time, a lot of them from out of town, right? So you've got Jewish people who are gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover to celebrate what happened way back in the book of Exodus. And they are coming, right? They are coming with the purpose of sacrificing the, the Passover lamb. So one commentator said, like, it's not, it's not too far-fetched to think that even in the midst of this triumphal entry, there are people who are showing up in Jerusalem, and there may have been uh, hundreds and maybe even thousands of lambs, like, walking the streets with people who are arriving here in Jerusalem as Jesus comes in, right? Like, the implications of that scene, Jesus in Jerusalem at the time of Passover to die as the ultimate lamb for our sins— and here you've got lambs running around, right? Like this, this shadow of the Old Testament, the Passover, where lambs were being sacrificed and blood was being shed so that the sins of the people could be covered, so the death angel would pass over, right? That that firstborn son would be spared. And here God is sending his son to die in our place. And so that shadow is fading as the ultimate reality is coming into light that Jesus is the perfect lamb. So that's kind of the setting for this triumphal entry. Two million plus people here to celebrate and to remember the provisions of the lamb back in Exodus. If they're not careful, they're going to miss the ultimate lamb in the midst of all these other lambs running around the street during this triumphal entry. The audience that's described here in this passage of people who are here witnessing this, we said the Passover visitors um, that have come to celebrate. But what's worth mentioning, because John mentions it, is the, um, the specific Gentile flavor or Greek flavor of some of these visitors that are here. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, right? Maybe directly from Greece, but maybe more just a, uh, a term used for Gentiles, right? These are non-Jewish people. These are most likely God-fearing people, individuals who have come to accept and to believe in the God of the Old Testament, the, 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 the God that has been presented to them, Yahweh of the Old Testament. They are, they are fearing him, following him, kind of acclimating to Jewish life as best they can as Gentiles, but they too are present in this city, and they are here ready to see Jesus, right? So you've got Passover visitors, visitors that include Gentiles. You've got the locals who witnessed the Lazarus resurrection, so they too are mentioned in this passage. And then you also have the nervous religious leaders, right? These guys who are kind of sitting back, watching everything unfold, talking amongst themselves, right? And they're, they're concerned, they're worried because they said, look, the world has gone after him. All right, so this is the setting for what we're looking at today. Two million plus people here celebrating the Passover. Jewish people and Gentiles. A good many that have seen the resurrection of Lazarus and a portion who is really uncomfortable with how everything is unfolding, right? What's the purpose of this triumphal entry? Um, you know, some people mistakenly think that Jesus was offering himself as king here, and had the Jewish people responded, it would have negated his need to go to the cross, right? Like, that's, that, that couldn't be more untrue, right? Like, you can't, you can't, 
change the plans here, right? Like Jesus is already, even, even in some of the other gospels, because this is mentioned in all four gospels, even in some of the other gospels, Jesus is even talking about the fact that, hey, we're going there so I can die, right? Like we are going there, I'm going to be rejected, I am going to die, right? So I think there's, there's a different purpose here for this triumphal entry. I think ultimately it is to be the breaking point for the Pharisees, right? Jesus is, is showing himself to be the promised king. He is inciting the crowd in such a way that it will move the Pharisees in their sinful hearts towards, uh, towards the crucifixion, right? It's also an act by Jesus to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, right? He is solidifying and even in a way for the disciples to look back upon it because the disciples, it tells us here, they didn't fully understand everything that was playing out here. I mean, everything's just going so fast. They're not really able to process. And this would be true for most of us, right? Like even though we know the Bible, there's times where things are happening around us and we don't think about biblical implications until after the fact. And we're like, oh, like, you know, that, 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 that kind of is relevant to what I've been studying or something like that. Well, for the disciples, they don't really get the fact that, okay, he was on a donkey and the Old Testament talks about the Messiah coming on a donkey, right? And some of the words that the, that the crowd was chanting and saying, well, that was, that was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament too. It says the disciples don't put all the pieces together until after the fact. So triumphal entry purpose is to move the Pharisees, kind of bring the Pharisees to what they've been stewing over for a while now to incite the, resur- to, to incite the crucifixion. And then it also fulfills Old Testament prophecy. It solidifies Jesus especially within the Jewish mind, that he is the promised Messiah, okay? Now, let's look at how this passage unfolds so we can see it more clearly. Number one, we need to see Jesus for the king that he is. We need to see Jesus for the king that he is. For our kids, Jesus is our king, right? See Jesus for the king that he is, he does come riding into Jerusalem, but he's very intentional in how he does it. And the way that he does it communicates the type of king that he is in this setting, the purpose that he has as well. All right, number one here, he presents himself as king in accordance with the Old Testament. And I think the crowd, if the disciples are missing it, the crowd is not in the sense that they are viewing him as king, specifically by quoting from Psalm 118. So if we flip over to Psalm 118, verse 25. Now remember, just days ago, he has resurrected Lazarus, right? And the people who saw that are spreading witness about that. So a lot of the reason that the crowd is led to Uh, feeling this way, expressing themselves this way, is in light of Lazarus' resurrection. I mean, they are really starting to buy into Jesus as uh, one who has great power, who can perform great signs, right? So in uh, Psalm 118, verse 25, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And the original language there would have um, wordage similar to Hosanna, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. All right? So they are, they are taking, and this whole psalm is a messianic psalm, and so they are taking that 
and using it in this context. So it's very clear, if you understand what Psalm 118 is about, and that it is a messianic psalm, they are taking that and they are speaking it to Jesus, right? So they are, they are, they are throwing it towards Jesus as, a, as an acknowledgement that we believe, we believe you are, at least in this context, the Messiah, right? The crowd recognizes him as king, but they limit his kingship. What do I mean by that? The way that they are celebrating uh, and, and the way that things play out later this week, right, when, when they are ready to crucify him, is that ultimately they see Rome as their biggest threat. And they want deliverance from Rome, right? And so the, 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 the palm branches and the, the ticker tape type parade, it's all focused on a battle mentality, uh, a deliverance type mentality, specifically from Rome, right? This is something that originated for them with the palm trees back in that intertestamental period between Old Testament and New Testament with the, the Maccabean Revolution. Um, when, when they found some deliverance there, this is how they celebrated with the palm branches. And, and it symbolizes a level of peace, right? And so they, in their acknowledgement of Jesus as king, are ready for him to deliver them from Rome, right? We talked a couple, we talked a couple weeks ago about how the Pharisees were most concerned about the wrath of Rome, right? They want to they escape the wrath of Rome. They don't want to see Rome's wrath applied to them. That's why they were worried about Lazarus' resurrection. There's going to be this, this revolt that ensues because of Jesus and the crowd that he's gathering, and Rome's going to be upset about this and take our power away. They were, they were concerned about the wrong enemy, right? They were concerned about the wrong wrath. The crowd here wants deliverance from Rome. But John presents Jesus in light of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. So again, in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, this is another messianic passage. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Right? So John presents Jesus as a, as a king of peace here, coming on the donkey as a sign of peace, not the horse that we see later in Revelation. Right? He's coming in, a, in, a, in, a, in an attitude of peace, not just for the Jewish people, but to the nations, right? Like you see the, the implications that the gospel is not just a national gospel for Israel. It's meant to extend to the ends of the earth. And we see that in the New Testament, right? It's, it's not something that changes in the New Testament, something that was always in place even in the Old Testament, that the gospel is for, is for the ends of the earth. And Jesus comes as this type of king to extend his rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He presents himself as king in accordance with the Old Testament. Not a king who's going to deliver them from Rome, but a king who is going to deliver them from sin. So number two, he presents himself as victorious, but in an unexpected way. <clears throat> he presents himself as victorious, but in an unexpected way. Again, he doesn't ride into Jerusalem to gather an army to attack Rome. He doesn't come to gain political victory. Instead, he comes to conquer a far greater enemy than Rome, and that's the enemies of sin and death. 
So this triumphal entry is certainly his presentation as king, but not the king that they were expecting, right? Not the king that they were necessarily longing for. Now, some in the crowd, yes, but, but overall, no. Um, and they're, they're let down in the sense that he's not come to conquer Rome. They don't, they don't necessarily see the need for sin and death to be conquered by the Messiah. That's not where their focus was. And so we need to see Jesus for the king that he is. Right? We need to recognize him in the way that he presents himself here in this passage. Number two, we need to show Jesus to those who are desiring him. We need to show Jesus to those who are desiring him. So back in John chapter 12, we see Jesus riding in. We see his disciples not understanding, verse 16 at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Then you have Philip going and telling Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All right, so you've got individuals who want to see Jesus, who want to be shown Jesus, right? Number one, the Gentiles come wanting to see more of Jesus, and they come with an attitude that doesn't seem to be what we've been witnessing, and that's a desire just to see him because of the signs. The the way Jesus reacts seems to indicate that there's more to their desire. The way Jesus reacts indicates that that time of the Gentiles is really, is really at hand, right? A time that we can certainly be very thankful for uh, in here. Um, that that we, are, we, are, um, we are brought into the family of God partly due to the rejection of the Jews, right? And so the Gentile, the Gentile time um, is expanded upon here. And that's indicated to us by these Jews or these Greeks or these Gentiles, Greeks or Gentiles, specifically coming and saying, well, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus here. And we know from verse 32, which we'll see uh, next week, Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, right? Jews and Gentiles alike. And so we know that that's certainly the, the design of the gospel is for all peoples to come. And we see that here with these Gentiles coming and saying they want to see Jesus. But the Jews have rejected Jesus, signifying a shift in redemptive history. This shift in redemptive history, Jesus will now go to the cross because of the rejection by the Jews. He says, my hour has now come. Now, We've seen that, that phrase used earlier in the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verse 4. John chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Also in verse 30. And then John chapter 8, verse 20. In all those passages, Jesus talks about my hour has not yet come. Right? It is not yet here that time for me to be glorified. That time for me to not only be crucified, but to be resurrected and to be glorified, right? That time had not yet come. And now for the first time in John, we see Jesus saying the hour is now here, that the time now has come. He foresaw the rejection. 
rather than a true celebration of his kingship. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28, this is the triumphal entry recorded by Luke. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All right, so triumphal entry. But look what it says about Jesus in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then right after this, he has to go back into the temple and cleanse it once again. So again, lest we think that in the midst of this celebration that Jerusalem is accepting him as the right type of king, Jesus indicates to us the real hearts of the people here. Right? He's weeping over the city. He's weeping over the crowds because they are not accepting him. Right? He, he terms it as rejection. Right? He's weeping over their rejection. And now there's a transition in redemptive history where Jesus will now go to the cross and there's this influx of Gentile salvation into the body of Christ. Jews have rejected him. He foresaw that rejection um, and anticipated it. Mark chapter 10 was the passage I referenced earlier about him uh, anticipating how this was going to go down, uh, the rejection and the, the, the beating and the flogging. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. So helpful to see this because it helps us to know that, that for sure Jesus was following through with God's plan and God's plan was being carried out, that in no way had the Jewish people stopped God's plans. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. This is again John chapter 10, verse 30, or Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him And after three days, he will rise. Not only did he anticipate the rejection, he anticipated the glorification that was to come to, right? That he knew in death he would be raised to new life. Number three, make personal sacrifices in order to produce fruit. 
All right, so we've seen that we need to see Jesus as the right type of king. We need to be willing to show Jesus to those who are desiring him. And then number three, make personal sacrifices in order to produce fruit. In the midst of this celebration of him as king, Jesus once again talks about his death, right? Gentiles want to see him. He says, all right, that means the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For our kids, serving Jesus is the best way to live. We make personal sacrifices in order to produce fruit. Number one, Jesus demonstrates how dying to self leads to fruitfulness. His death leads to this reaping of a great harvest. What we're seeing here is that his death makes life possible for others, and that's certainly how he uses this illustration of the the seed, the grain, and it being planted into the ground, essentially that seed dying, right? Splitting open, but it coming back in a greater form, right? It comes back in a greater form to where it is able to produce fruit, right? It's able to produce offspring. And that's certainly what we see through Jesus's death and resurrection. We see the explosion of the church, right? The book of Acts and, and how the church is growing regularly, right? In response to what? Jesus's resurrection, it's, it's a greater resurrection than Lazarus. We see Lazarus's resurrection, and we see some starting to come, but even some coming and not really, not really believing in Jesus, just, just being kind of fascinated by the sign. But man, when Jesus comes back from the dead, after his crucifixion, that's when the church really begins to explode. They're adding to their numbers daily, right? In death, he's become infinitely more fruitful through that resurrection. And that's what he's relaying here, that Hey, don't be sad about my death. Understand that what it's going to produce, just like a seed produces great harvest, his death is going to do the same. He demonstrates how dying to self leads to fruitfulness. He certainly dies to his own desires of uh, self, self-protection, self-preservation, right? Like he's, 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 he's giving up um, his own well-being as a man, giving of his life so that we can be saved, Right? And so he's, he's dying to his, his self so that fruit can be born. That imitation for us piece, number two, if we die to ourselves, we can avoid isolation and enjoy fruit bearing too. The picture that Jesus gives us here is that the seed by itself is lonely and unfruitful when kept in isolation. Instead, Jesus talks about the need, to, the need for that seed to die so that it doesn't remain alone. It dies and it bears much fruit. Now, the New Testament talks about us as believers and what it means for us to die. Not a physical death, right? Um, But it talks about it from a spiritual standpoint, what it looks like for us to come to Christ and to essentially die to our sin, to die to our old way of life. And it talks about it in in a way that, Sometimes it's hard to grasp because there's passages that talk about us absolutely being dead to these things. And then there's passages that call us to die to these same things, right? So you're like, well, which one is it? Am I dead or am I dying? And it's, it's kind of a both and, right? So let me, let me give you some of the, the passages that talk about this. In salvation, we experience an immediate death. 
from we cross from death to life, there is a death that the Bible talks about taking place in us towards our old way of life. In Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, right? And you got both right there in that passage. Paul's talking in, in, in the beginning part of Romans chapter six, you're dead. You've been crucified with Christ. You, you, have been, um, you have been placed with him and you are now dead to your sin. But then he caps it with verse 11 and says, you need to consider yourself this way. As though it's not an automatic thing for us to experience. He says, you gotta consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter two talks about us being dead as Christians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's this picture of us being dead and raised to walk in newness of life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So in salvation, we experience an immediate death to our old way of life. But then also in salvation, we are called to daily dying. That, that living out what is true about us. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says this is a daily thing that has to happen in us. He said to him, if any, uh, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whatever, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? But I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. All right, so he talks about this daily dying that has to take place in the life of a believer. We said Romans chapter 6, verse 11 talks about that. But then even Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 talks about us offering our lives as a sacrifice, right? That we're to, we're to offer our, our, ourselves as a daily sacrifice. So which one's true? Well, what you have here in Scripture is this positional truth that we have died to our sin, and then this daily expectation for us to practically live that out. I remember early on when I was up at Snowbird, uh, Brody used the illustration 
kind of a wartime illustration. And oftentimes you'll see in a, in a war where victory is declared, where the enemy has surrendered, but in no way does that mean that battles have ceased, that victory can be won. And this was certainly true over in the Middle East where victory was won, victory was declared, the enemy surrendered, and yet battles continued to ensue. There was still fighting that took place because it was something true positionally. We had won the war, but there was this practical application that was having to be carried out on a daily basis. Another illustration for you. I was, I was named the fourth and fifth grade principal late April, right? Like our head of school came out and we had a big staff-wide meeting that said, hey, Adam is now the principal of fourth and fifth grade. I'm going to tell you, however many months since then, we're still practically applying that on a daily basis to the fourth and fifth grade culture, right? It was declared that Adam is the fourth and fifth grade principal, but we're still figuring out how that practically plays itself out on a daily basis with staff learning what it looks like to work for me, with students learning what it looks like to be underneath me, right? And so that's true here in Scripture as well. There's this positional truth that we are dead, to sin, raised to walk in newness of life, but then this practical piece where we're having to carry that out on a daily basis. And Jesus talks about the fruit that comes from that. We're called to imitate his example of self-sacrifice. We're to die to, to our own desires, our own dreams for our life. Our stingy self-centeredness, we die to those things so that we can produce lasting fruit. All right? Back in John chapter 12. Number four, live this life in the context of eternal life. Jesus talks about dying to self and it yielding fruit. He now talks about loving your life and hating your life. He says, whoever loves his life, or whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. For our kids, eternal life will be so much better than this life. We want to live this life in the context of eternal life. Number one, by loving our life too much, we will actually lose it. What does it mean to love your life? It means to to live your life in such a way where you're focused on yourself. It means clinging to your plans, your dreams, your desires. And even the word life here that's used in the original language, it's really talking about the part of the mind that makes the decisions the independent will of man. And so loving life means clinging to your plans, your dreams, your desires. And if you love your own life, you'll end up destroying it. But Jesus says by hating our life properly, we'll actually gain it. So loving your life means focusing on yourself. Hating your life means focusing on Christ. So what's not being presented here is that Christians are supposed to hate life hate circumstances, go about miserable, hoping that eternal life will get here sooner rather than later, right? Instead, the way we live our life, it is to look to all those around us as though we hate this life because we are withholding things from ourselves. We are sacrificing things that would have benefited us for the good of others, right? So, Jesus says that, that we're to, to not love our life, we're going to lose it. Instead, we're to hate our life to actually gain it. 
It's choosing to deny yourself the things that the flesh wants, right? We, we hate this life by denying our flesh the things that it wants, the sinful things that it wants. We choose to embrace suffering with trust in his goodness. We choose to embrace suffering by trusting in his goodness. We choose to put the needs of others above our own needs. We choose to sacrificially give so that others too might live. That's what it means to to hate your life. It's to deny yourself, to embrace suffering, to trust God's goodness in the midst of that suffering, to put the needs of others above your own needs, to sacrificially give so so others too might live. We live this life in the context of eternal life that is to come. And I think we're, we're probably really good at what it means to love our life too much. I think even for me, as I was meditating on this passage, that there's still more thought that needs to take place in my own life about what it, what it really looks like for me to, to hate my life in the, in the ways that are being described here. Um, I, don't, I don't know if... I don't know if I'm, if I'm content and comfortable enough with, with where my life is at to say that it, it matches what, what's being described here, right? Like, I think that, um, I think I could easily justify my life in a way that, that says I don't love it too much, but, but I, I still think there's probably a lot of truth about me still loving my life versus, versus hating it, that um, I don't know that, that I'm living out this sacrificial life the way that I want to, the way that I need to, to really mesh and mirror what Jesus is describing here. Um, I don't know that anybody would look at my life and say that, that, I, that I hate it in this context. Um, and again, it's a careful balance because I don't think that, that we're supposed to, again, go about this life in misery or to withhold ourselves from anything good. Like I think that, that, that goes down a an unhelpful path as well. Um, I think instead what's being described here by Jesus is just this overwhelming life that is so focused on others and so focused on sacrificing for the needs of others, this, this constant giving towards others and fruit coming from that, fruit coming from that self-denial. Um, because what, what this culture would say is that we, we live for ourselves, we cling to the things that, that are good for us, um, we think about ourselves only, and Jesus is causing is calling us to a kind of a countercultural living here. Um, live this life in the context of eternal life, he says. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. All right, that we don't we don't love it so much that we lose it. Um, that instead we're so focused on the eternal life and what's to come that it it almost looks like we hate this life because we're so consumed with the life to come and the choices and decisions that we make on a daily basis are focused on that life to come, all right? Number five, what he kind of wraps up this passage with, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. There's some promises that are contained here that if we choose to live life in, in this way, for our kids, we will be honored for serving Jesus. He gives us two pieces here. One, by following him with service, we enjoy his favorable presence. It says that we will be with him 
by following him and serving him. We've talked about Jesus' omnipresence. He's everywhere. But when he talks about being with him, it's in the, it's in the best sense possible, right? That, that we are with him and his favorable presence is with us, right? He's not, he's not in a, uh, a disciplining type of approach towards us. It's a, it's a very healthy presence that he has in our life when we are following him and serving him. By following him with service, we enjoy his favorable presence. And then number two, by following him with service, we receive honor in the life to come. We receive honor in the life to come is what he says. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So to kind of summarize, what, what, what's he talking about after this triumphal entry where he's received by some but rejected by most? Tells his disciples, hey, the, the hour has come. It's, it's, it's arrived. He indicates that by the Gentiles coming and expressing a desire to see him. We see that he's weeping over the Jews. Even though they are celebrating him, he sees the rejection of their hearts. Then he communicates once again the aspect of him having to die, that by dying he is going to be fruitful, that by losing his life he's, he's actually making life available to others. And then he's admonishing us that if we'll serve him and follow him, that we'll be with him and we will be honored by his Father. And so what we see as a summary form, our duty is to follow him, to hate this life, to gain the next. Our reward is to be with him. And that means a fruitful, eternal life with him where we enjoy honor for serving him. And so the application questions that I want to kind of leave you with today to, to take and ponder. Is there anything I need to die to that would show my position in Christ more clearly to myself and others? And I think, too, when we talk about what it looks like to love your life versus hate your life. I think that looks different for each individual as well. Um, you know, we're all in different spots. We all have different incomes. We all have different jobs and contexts. And how we, how we live as a Christian may look differently from the person living or sitting next to us and, and how we, we show the value and the worth of Christ. That may look different based on our different contexts right? Um, is there anything that you specifically need to die to that would show your position in Christ more clearly to yourself and to others? Somebody's about to hate their life. Their car's being stolen. Probably mine. <laughs> Sounds like mine. Number two, are you viewing life with Christ as the supreme goal of life? Meaning, if you were offered the best circumstances in life without Jesus would it not be the best, right? Like if, if, you could, if you could have life with the absolute best circumstances but not have Jesus as a part of that, would that still be considered the best life? No, right? That, that if, if somebody offered you the absolute best circumstances for this life without Jesus, right? Like no relationship with Jesus, but the absolute best circumstances in life, that's no longer the best situation anymore, right? If Jesus is not a part of that, so are you viewing life with Christ as the supreme goal of life, not obtaining all the best circumstances of life, right? So oftentimes we, 
we grow discontent with Jesus because we're not being given the best circumstances, and yet we still have Jesus, right? And so we show trust in him when our circumstances are not the best, when they're not great. We show that we are focused on the life to come with Christ when we're willing to to endure the sufferings, when we're willing to endure the the less than best circumstances here on on this earth, right? So, the one piece there is, is there anything that you need to die to that would show your position in Christ more clearly to yourself and others? Is there anything that you need to die to in your own life? That could be a particular sin, a, a habit, a, um, a, a possession that's maybe gained uh, an unhealthy uh, hold in your life, right? Is there anything that you need to die to in your own life that would show Christ to be more valuable than he's currently being shown in your life? And then number two, for you to step back and, and, and ask yourself, are you viewing life with Christ as the supreme goal of life? Even if you had the best circumstances, without Jesus, it would not be the best. That, that Christ is your treasure, that Christ is the supreme goal of this life, to be with him for the life to come. All right? For our family worship questions for this week, how should seeing Jesus as our king affect our life? And then number two, how should our family look different from others if we're not trying to love our lives? How should seeing Jesus as our king affect our life? I mean, the Jews were trying to, all the way back with the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to seize him and make him king so that he could be their type of king, do what they wanted him to do. Jesus is a different kind of king than what they were hoping for. How should Jesus... As, as our king affect the way that we live our life? Number two, how should our family look different from others if we're trying not to love our lives? Um, really cool example of this, uh, I think, was um, we did a new family interview this week for um, a kid coming to sixth grade at Trinity. And we're just kind of making small talk with him, kind of finding out who he is, what he likes, where his interests are. And he, he was saying he's a big baseball guy, loves baseball. And um, he said... Uh, he said, I used to be, and this isn't an indictment against anybody else because I don't know everybody's arrangements with sports, but he said, you know, big baseball guy, he said, we used to do travel ball. This is a sixth grader. Used to do travel ball. And um, he said, then we had to stop. He said, because it was taking our family away from church. And, and he said, our family's just decided we're not going to do that. We're not going to let things like that uh, interfere with, with our church life. And I'm thinking like, man, like, I can't wait for you to be a part of our student body, right? Like, like this kid, like, is being raised in such a way where he, he wasn't, like, grumbling or complaining about it. Like, it, it almost felt like he was a part of the decision-making process versus just being told by his parents, hey, you can't play baseball anymore for your travel ball team because it interferes with church. It was almost like, I mean, the kid was involved in that decision-making process, right? It's like, hey, Jesus is more important than the things of this world, right? And for, for the outside world, you might look at that and say, man, like, you're going you're gonna to blow your chance at a scholarship. You're going to blow your chance at making it big because he won't be involved and won't be seen and won't be scouted, right? Like, it, it looks like you, you hate your kid's development, right? Family saying, and we love Jesus more than that, right? And, like, it may not make sense to the rest of the world, but we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this if it interferes with our, our family being involved in church. So I think that's just a, a, small, a small taste of, of, of what we're kind of talking about here is that um, following Christ, serving Christ, it's, it's focused on the life to come. And it means setting aside some personal desires here at times, um, but recognizing that, 
the best life here, if it doesn't involve Jesus, it's not the best life anymore. Um, that the, the best life is the one to come where we're with him for eternity. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that, that Jesus clearly reveals himself as king in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. God, we're thankful that you use the rejection of the people for good purposes, that it led to Christ dying on the cross on our behalf so that he could be an example, yes, but so that he could be far more than an example, that he could be a a substitute on our behalf. God, we're thankful that there aren't lambs running around in our church auditorium today, that that we don't have to bring sacrifices to you this morning, that, that Christ stands as the perfect lamb for us. We're thankful that, that blood was shed on our behalf so that we could escape the wrath. Father, we're thankful that in, in coming to you for salvation, that, that we're now dead to our old life. We are now dead to sin and raised to walk in newness of life. We are thankful that that victory has been declared for us. But Father, we also recognize that practically we're still, we're still learning to live that out. And God, I pray that you would help us to see what it means to, to not love our life. To even hate it if necessary so that we gain the life to come. God, I pray that the choices and the decisions that we make would be designed from a desire to to serve others, to be willing to sacrifice, to be willing to give so that others can see Jesus. Father, I pray that we would not cling to this world so tightly that we lose sight of the world to come. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom in knowing how to follow you and serve you on a daily basis as our king. We thank you that you're a good king who rules and reigns and calls us to follow you in obedience. But then in doing so, it's, it's the best way to live life. God, I pray that we would see that more and more every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.